Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Well, this morning I'd like to begin with a question. What is Labor Day? Why do we celebrate it? When did it start? What is it? Does anyone actually know, just off the top of your head? Oh, a couple? You really know? Oh, that's impressive. I had no idea. I had no idea. No, I just meant like, I just, I didn't know people actually know. I have a bachelor's degree in American history, and I had no idea. Uh, it's pretty embarrassing. Well, for those of us who don't know, like me, let me give the official definition from the U.S. Department of Labor. Here's what they say on their website. Labor Day is the first Monday in September, is a creation of the labor movement and is dedicated to the social and economic achievements of American workers. It constitutes a yearly national tribute to the contributions workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country. So there it is. Apparently, Labor Day is a day where we celebrate labor. We celebrate the workers of this country, which is pretty much all of us. And I'm sure, of course, there's all sorts of political agendas and things that go on behind why it was created and things like that. But that's really not what we're going to be talking about this morning. What I do want to focus on this morning is labor, or work. Thinking about Labor Day uh, really got me thinking about how we as Christians view the work that we do or the jobs that we have the tasks that we may set out to complete. Our nation celebrates labor once a year. But my question is, how should we as Christians think about work? How does God view work? Does God have anything to say about Christians and how they work? Come to think of it, is work a good thing or a bad thing? It's supposed to endure or enjoy? Does our work even matter? Now, before we begin, let me clarify a couple of things. First, what do I mean when I say the word work? I'll tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean just whatever you get paid to do. Uh, whatever you get paid to do, your job certainly is work. Work really is anything you do to serve others. When I use the word work this morning, I want you to think of your job, but I also want you to think of other ways you serve people throughout the week, maybe including things like helping your kids with homework, bringing a meal to someone who is sick, or for the kids, work is doing your schoolwork or your homework. Work is doing your chores around the house that you all do very faithfully and regularly without complaining, right? Maybe it's teaching kids' church or making coffee or collecting offering. Even hobbies can be work. Painting, making music, building things, creating things. Um, these are all different types of work. And kids, I mentioned you earlier, but this means this sermon is for you too. And the same goes for those who are without work or who are retired maybe. There's plenty for everyone in this sermon. That's the first qualification. The second is this. What God says in his word about work applies to everyone, not just those who love their job or who have a career. This sermon applies to the teenager flipping hamburgers as much as it does to the business executive cutting multi-million dollar deals. It applies as much to the kid faithfully doing their chores as it does to the airline pilot responsible for hundreds of lives. Basically, it applies to us all. So with that, let me give you the thrust of this sermon. I want to give you kind of the take-home truth or big idea, kind of the if you left here remembering one thing, here's what it is. And so I'm going to give you this statement, and basically the rest of the sermon, we're just going to be unpacking and kind of showing from Scripture um, where I derive these things. Here's the statement. 
We honor God with our work by understanding its purpose and by working with a sincere heart, being motivated by Christ's finished work. That's what I'm after this morning. We're going to kind of tackle each statement piece by piece. So the first thing I want you to see is this. The first thing is this. We were designed by God to work. We're designed. We were created as humans to work. In other words, when God created us, he made us to do stuff, to build stuff, to fix stuff, to create stuff. I think you get the picture. He designed us specifically to work. And this makes sense if you think about it. Actually, if you want to just turn to Genesis 1.1, we're going to be looking at a couple of different verses in the beginning of Genesis here. So just flip right to the first page of your Bible. Genesis 1.1. The very first part of the entire story of the world. How did it all start? What do we see God doing in the very first verse of Genesis? Working. That's right. Genesis tells us that God worked for six days, and on the seventh he rested. The first sentence of the entire Bible, Genesis 1.1, is about God working. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In the beginning, God created. He created. He's creating. He is making. He's working. If you want further proof, look over to Genesis 2, and it says this. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And what's interesting about this word work, first of all, it's talking about his creation, his act of creating, but second of all, it's the same word that's used in many different places in the Old Testament for just everyday work. So when they're building the tabernacle, it's the same Hebrew word that's used here. And so God works and God rests. Now look at Genesis 1.27, just back a couple verses. This is where we're going to begin to see how we're connected to this. So Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates humankind in his own image. This is obviously significant and is a theme that develops throughout all of Scripture, which we're not going to really go into in depth right now. For now, what is significant is this. Being made in the image of God means that in some ways we were made to be like God. And what I want you to see this morning is this. When we work, we are doing something that God created us to do, that God himself does. And we're expressing this idea. We're expressing the image of God in us when we work. Now, look at the very next verse, Genesis 1.28. What is the first thing after God creates humankind? So in Genesis 1.27, he creates humankind. The first thing he does or says to them is he blesses them and gives them a job description. So look at Genesis 1.28. It says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates mankind, and God immediately dignifies them and blesses them with a job description and with work to do. The same is true of the parallel count in Genesis 2. Go ahead and look at Genesis 2.15, and we'll see another one of the reasons that God created us. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Here in these texts, you can clearly see that God designed and created mankind to work. This is one of the main tasks that we've been given as a people, as a species. 
you and all of you and me, we're all created by God to work. It's ingrained in your nature. It's ingrained in your very soul. That's why being productive feels so good and being unproductive is so depressing. You know what I'm talking about. Have you ever come home from a hard day at work uh, that, though it was really hard, was really productive, and you just kind of plop down, but you feel good, you feel accomplished, right? There's something that just feels right about that. But have you ever had one of those days at work where maybe it was slow or you were just tired and you just, maybe you tried, but you just didn't get anything done? It's like the worst feeling in the world, just feeling unproductive. It's depressing. This is why there's a huge correlation between unemployment and depression. And, and that's why unemployment is such a problem. We were created by God to work. Now, again, that doesn't just mean things we do for a paycheck. You could not have a job and still be working. But we were created by God to work and be productive. When we work hard, we are fulfilling one of the main purposes that God created us for. And we'll unpack that more a little later. Now, here's something else extremely important to see in these texts. When did God give mankind their job description? So when did God give mankind their work to do? When did he give them their work? Was it before or after the fall? It's before. It's really important. God gave mankind work to do before the fall, before they ever sinned. Now, this is significant. What does it mean? This means that work was a part of creation when it was perfect. This means that work is a part of God's good intention for our lives. Work is not a curse. Work is not a punishment. Work is not something that we need to escape. Work is good. When God looked out on the sixth day, and as Genesis 1.31 says, saw that it was very good, he was looking at Adam and Eve working in the garden. I want you to take that to heart and kind of chew on it maybe this week. Work is good. Work was a part of God's original perfect plan for creation. It was a part of the very good of creation. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's nice. I still hate my job, and I don't like working. Uh, work is hard. It's stressful. It's sweaty. It hurts me. I don't like it. Um, I think we've all felt like that at times. If you know the story of Genesis, you might even be thinking, well, yeah, work was good until Adam and Eve sinned and ruined everything. Now work is cursed. And if this is what you're thinking, you're exactly right. You're absolutely correct. Because of the fall, or to put it another way, because Adam and Eve sinned, work is cursed. What does this mean? Well, to paraphrase Genesis 3, it means that work is now hard. It's strenuous. It's hard on our bodies. It's hard on our minds. It's hard on our emotions, on our spirits. Work is hard. And this is true. Everyone can give a hearty amen to that, I'm sure. Whether you're doing homework or yard work, work is hard. It's strenuous. But here's the thing that I want you to see. It's still good, and it's still a part of God's design for us, and he still calls us to work. Work is good, and God has designed and created us to work. It's part of his plan for us. And when we work, we fulfill one of God's purposes for us. God designed us to work. But you might be thinking, well, whatever. I still hate work, and I just want to sit on my rear end all day. So now I want to ask the question, what happens if we do this? What happens if we reject God's design for us? What happens when you reject God's design for you? What happens when you reject what God says about work? What if you decide that you still hate work and that's just it? Or maybe the opposite. What happens if you idolize work and make it the ultimate purpose of your life? 
forsaking everything else. Well, this is the second thing we're going to see this morning. The second thing I want you to see is this. We devastate our lives when we reject God's original plan for work. In other words, if you decide to reject what God says about work, you're basically claiming you know more about how you were created than God does. This never goes well when we do this. If God has designed us, which he has, then he's designed us for specific purposes. He's designed work to have a specific place in our lives. Then if that's true, which it is, then that's the best way it's going to be. To follow that purpose is going to go the best for us. That is literally the way God has made the world to work. This means then that if you choose to reject this, your life will suffer. In fact, if you reject God's purposes for work over a long and sustained period of time, it will devastate your life. This is the only logical conclusion, and I'll prove it to you from the scriptures. Now, there are basically two main ways you could reject God's original plan for work. There's two ways in which you could say, God, I don't care how you have made things, I know better. The first way is this. You could make work an idol. You could choose to make work an idol. Okay? Idolizing work is a rejection of God's intended plan for work because it puts work as the ultimate thing instead of God himself. This is the person to whom work is the most important thing in their life. Their job is the most important. Their career is the most important. It takes up all their time. It takes up all their thought. This might be obvious in someone's life, or it might be subtle. Work is where you find your value if work is your idol. Work is where you get your self-worth. Work is where your identity is. Work is everything to you. You are constantly trying to climb the ladder to gain status to get at the next level in your job. Or maybe if you're a student. Kids, I think we've all experienced that student who literally has a meltdown if they don't get an A-plus on everything, right? I mean, I used to have a girl in my high school. I remember every class she was in that I was into, if she got anything less than like a 98%, she was going to the teacher right away. What happened? Why didn't I get, why, why, why didn't I get a better grade? And she would do anything she could. I mean, that's, that's an idol. Work has become an idol. And here's the thing. Work makes a really poor idol because it never delivers on its promises. See, because the promise is that once you attain this next level, then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll find contentment. But it's just not true. It's just like any other idol or sin. It's never enough. You're always chasing the next thing, the next job, the next promotion. And you might be tempted to think, well, I hate my job, so obviously that's not my problem. No way work is my idol. But let me ask you, are you making that next job an idol? Is your life on hold until you get that perfect job? Are you waiting on that perfect job, then you will finally be happy? If you are, work might be an idol for you. Or maybe you're seeking security and comfort. Now these aren't bad in themselves, but if you pursue them with, with an idolatrous heart that you can't be satisfied until you have them, they become your God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about someone who's made work an idol because of their desire for riches, desire for money. He says this in 1 Timothy 6, 9-10, Here's what he says. He says, but those who desire to be rich, notice he doesn't say just those who are rich. He says those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Is your work an idol because you want, you need more money, you need security? Are you just chasing after satisfaction through work? 
If this is you, I would urge you to repent and turn to Christ for your satisfaction. Turn to Christ for your security. Turn to Christ for your comfort. Before, as the Apostle Paul says, you plunge yourself into destruction, any senseless and harmful desires. Brothers and sisters, Christ is the only one who can give us true satisfaction. He's the only one who can give us true comfort. Work makes a poor idol. It makes a poor God. And idolizing work will devastate your life. But what's the other way you can reject God's original plan for work? The second way you can is idleness, laziness, idleness. This is the person who rejects God's original plan by saying, work, I hate work. In fact, I'm going to do as little as possible to get by. If I didn't have to work to pay rent, I wouldn't. I would do nothing. This is the lazy person. This is, uh, and I want to say something about laziness. Laziness is one of those sins that for whatever reason in our culture, we kind of accept as a personality trait, right? Oh, that person's just lazy. But that's not how God's word speaks about laziness. God's word speaks about laziness as a serious sin that will have serious impacts on your life, very negative impacts, and we'll see that. Every Christian, Ephesians tells us, has been saved to do good works. The lazy Christian says, that's nice, I don't really care. Now, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs all the way through, you would know that it has a reoccurring character, a couple different reoccurring characters, actually. But there's a reoccurring character that's supposed to symbolize lazy people. It's a metaphor. And this character is called the sluggard. The sluggard. I mean, that's just a vivid term. That's one of those terms, I think it's called onomatopoetic, where it just sounds like what it is. The sluggard. There are a lot of Proverbs in the book of Proverbs about the sluggard. You can just do a Google search, Proverbs, sluggard, you'll find them all. But let me read a few to you. And here's what I want you to notice. Notice what the, what the author of Proverbs is saying, how laziness will affect your life. Notice the serious consequences. Here's the first one. Proverbs 26.14 says this, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. In other words, what he's saying is, the sluggard sleeps so much, it's like he's attached to his bed. It's just, right? And we laugh because it's a funny picture, and I think it's kind of supposed to be ironic, but, but it's really sad, because notice, notice the next one. Proverbs 6, 5 through 11. Notice what it says will happen. It says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want or need like an armed man. Again, we see this, this theme of laziness, of, of oversleeping, of just desiring sleep over all things. And the author advises the sluggard, look at the ants. Look how hard they work without any boss over them telling what to, them to do. They are prepared when hard times come because they're working hard. But the author tells us that the sluggard is not. The author says the sluggard will be struck with poverty when hard times come because they would rather sleep or pursue worthless things than work. It's devastating. And one more. Proverbs 24, 30 through 31 says this. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Again, poverty has struck the sluggard. His house is a wreck. 
his field unable to produce food, and he is unprotected, all just out of sheer laziness. Now, if these verses are describing you or describing some tendencies in you, we can have a mix of them, right? I would urge you to repent and turn to Christ. Wake up from your sleep, as the author says. This type of laziness is a sin against God, and only he can supply the remedy. The cure for the sluggard is not just to try and work really hard. The cure is to see the beauty and surpassing, surpassing worth of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and let him awaken your heart. This is the only cure for laziness. Like any other sin, Jesus provides the cure. Jesus himself is the cure. And so we've seen that God designed us to work. It was part of his purpose for us to work. And we've seen two types of rejection of God's plan, idolatry and idleness. So then the question is, how should we work, right? What should we do? We've understood that we can glorify God equally in all types of work, paid or unpaid, flipping burgers or preaching or doing chores or watching the kids at home or banking or digging ditches. If we can honor God in all these types of work and in all sorts of different jobs, well, how do we do it? How do we honor God in the work that we do? The answer is our third point this morning. We honor God in our work by working with a sincere heart because we work for Jesus. And I want you to notice something. As we go into this section, as we look at the text of Scripture, what you're going to see is God is not honored just that we work. Well, if I work hard, God's honored. It's, it's actually much deeper than that. It's much like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you know, do not murder. But I tell you, if you look on someone with hate in your heart, you've murdered in your heart. It's going to be quite the same. You've heard that it was said you need to work hard. It's true. But what Paul's going to tell us here in our scripture is that if you're not working from a pure heart, it's not honoring to God. And we'll see that. So we honor God in our work by working with a sincere heart because we work for Jesus. In other words, we honor God not necessarily by what type of work we do. That's not really that important. We honor God in how we work, in the attitude with which we approach our work, with the heart with which we approach our work. Now, this theme can be found in multiple places in Scripture, but there are two specifically where the Apostle Paul makes this very clear. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, and Colossians 3, 23 through 25. This morning we're going to focus on the passage in Colossians, but as a matter of fact, they're almost identical passages. Before you turn to Colossians, though, I want you to think about something else. Do you remember what the greatest commandment is? Jesus tells us this in Matthew 22, 36. Someone says to him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus tells us, you want to fulfill the commandments, you want to please God through fulfilling commandments, well, here's what you got to do. Love God and love your neighbor. These are the two most important ones. How does this relate to work? Well, I would offer you this idea. Our work is one of the main ways which we love God and love our neighbor. We're going to see in Colossians 3 that the work that we do, whatever type it is, either honors or dishonors God, either expresses our love for God or our disdain for God. This is how we express our love to God. But also, when you think about it, the work that we do expresses love to our neighbors. Almost every job you can think of helps somebody with something, provides some type of service, maybe food, maybe medicine, 
help with your computer, I think you get the idea. Every job is pretty much helping someone somehow. When you work, you're loving your neighbor. And it's okay that you get paid for it. In fact, it's glorifying to God that you get paid for it. Work is one of the main ways in which we serve God and serve our neighbors. So with that in mind, go ahead and turn to Colossians 3. Uh, We're going to be looking at 22 through 25. Let's go ahead and turn there. And what we're going to see here may seem a little strange at first. This section of Colossians is uh, Paul's instructions to the slaves in the church of Colossae. Now, we're not going to go into the whole topic of the Bible and slavery. That would take a whole lot of time, and that's a topic for another time. But slavery in the first century was very different from the American slavery of the 1800s. Still bad, but different. The Apostle Paul here is subtly undermining the entire institution in a brilliant way with the way that he addresses this issue. But the point for us this morning is that while these instructions were written to the slaves in the church, I hope that you can see that these principles are general principles that will apply to us as we work as well. So with that, let's read uh, Colossians 3, 22 to 25. It says this, Bond servants, or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Well, from this, we can draw multiple principles for how God wants us to work and how we can honor God in our work as Christians, as his children. Number one, pretty easily, we're not to be defiant, but rather to listen to what our bosses have to say. We're to do the things they ask us to do without grumbling or complaining. This doesn't mean... Our bosses aren't wrong sometimes or that they don't frustrate us. But what it does mean is that a continual attitude of complaining and kind of that I know better attitude is dishonoring to God. In fact, it's a sin. Secondly, this. Paul says we're not to work by way of eye service or as people pleasers. Now, there are some interesting Greek terms behind these ideas, but here's kind of what they're getting at. Eye service is work that is performed or done only because someone is watching you. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's that person who only does a good job at work or only works hard when their boss is kind of right over their shoulder. As soon as the boss leaves, they're slacking off. Um, done plenty of that in my days as a young employee. Um, we, we must not work like this, though. It's, it's dishonoring to God. But Paul also says, because it says, don't, don't be work for eye service, but he says, don't be a people pleaser. And this is a similar idea to eye service. It basically means someone who only works so hard so that other people will like them. It's someone who only works so hard, works hard so they can climb the ladder. They basically work for their own benefit, just to make other people happy. They don't actually care about the job they do or about anyone else, really. They just want to get ahead. They just want to avoid conflict. They work hard when that important person is around, but other than that, they couldn't care less. Again, friends, this is dishonoring to God. This is not the way that God created us to work. And number three, we, so we've seen kind of how not to work. But now Paul's going to tell us how to work. Look at verses 23 and 24 where, where Paul says, um, whatever he says, work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men. We're to work with sincerity of heart and to work heartily. 
or literally the Greek phrase there means from the soul, to work from the soul. What this means is simple. We're to work with integrity and out of honesty trying to be good workers. It's the opposite of eye service and people pleasing. Again, what Paul is not saying is when he says work heartily, it's not just mean just do your best, like work really hard. Um, What he says is we're to work from a pure heart, with pure motives. It means that we understand that God has given us our work, so we work hard, we work with joy, and we work honestly even when no one is watching. We're not slackers, we're not grumblers, we're not simply, or we are simply to be good employees. And so now you might ask, well, why? And this is what I love about the Bible. This is what I love about Scripture, especially the Apostle Paul. He always gives you the reason why for the things he's saying. Paul puts it simply because he says this, we're literally in everything we do actually working for Jesus. And he will reward us or discipline us according to how we work. This means for everyone here that Jesus is your boss. For the fry cook, for the receptionist, for the pastor, for the stay-at-home mom, for the pharmacist, for the grocery store cashier, for the IT guy, you work for Jesus. This is the biblical teaching on work. You work for Jesus. So check this out. You can't stand your boss. It's great. You don't actually ultimately work for him. You work for Jesus. You don't have an excuse to be a poor worker. None of us do. That's how this whole thing works. Even if you have the most boring, menial, low-level job, you can glorify God just as much as the pastor can in his work. Martin Luther was famous for saying, I don't remember the quote off the top of my head, but I'll paraphrase it, that the guy off the road who's shoveling manure can glorify God just as much as the pastor preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. So we work with a sincere heart, and we work for the Lord. And this is an encouragement, because look at verse 24. Paul says, why do this? Because we work for the Lord, because from the Lord our reward is coming, our inheritance And that inheritance is guaranteed. That's what Ephesians 1 was all about that we heard this morning. And so we're called to serve Jesus himself in our jobs. Let us honor him in our work. Let us glorify him in our work. And when we fail, let us turn to him with confession and repentance and receive his grace. So brothers and sisters, we've learned this morning that God designed us to work. We've, we've learned that if we reject this design, this purpose, it will devastate our lives. And we've seen what it looks like to honor God in our work by working with sincere hearts because we work for the Lord Jesus. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, okay, guilty as charged. I get it. I'm not always honoring God in my work. But what do I do? Where do I get the strength to do this? What, what, what do I need to do this? What if I fail? Um... Because let's be honest, trying harder just doesn't cut it, right? Well, this brings us to our fourth and final point, and that's this. We are motivated to do these things because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We're motivated to do these things because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. In other words, because God, as we just sang, has already finished everything that we need to please God, we can work out of love for Him because His love overflows onto us. In other words, our satisfaction is in Christ, which means we don't have to make work an idol. We won't find our satisfaction in work because we know we have it in Christ. It means we don't have to to be lazy. We're not going to be idle because, again, our satisfaction is in Christ, not in just our own pleasure, our own leisure. 
So brothers and sisters, the truth is that in our own strength, we cannot glorify God in our work. Left to our own devices, we are grumblers and complainers, idolizing work and being idle in our work. But the power of Christ changes us. It motivates us. The power of the gospel smashes our idleness and idols into pieces. See, Christ comes to the woman who has made work an idol and says, Daughter, turn back to me. Stop trying to find satisfaction in your work. Find it in me. I have paid the price for your sin of idolatry. And Christ comes to the man who is a sluggard and says, Son, get up out of bed. No longer look to your bed for rest, but come to me. I can give you true rest. I can give you that satisfaction. Rest for your soul. I have paid the price for your laziness. Now it's time to get to work. You see, Christ comes to us this way. He comes to us in our sin and says, I have a better way. I made a better way. I am the way. Follow me. If you read the book of Colossians, you'll notice that the section we looked at comes at the end of the book. The Apostle Paul is very intentional about this. The Apostle Paul always prefaces his instructions for living with the gospel. Any book you read by the Apostle Paul, the first half generally is going to be just theology, exalting Jesus. The second half is then, okay, so now how do we live in light of that? That is the key. That is the secret. That's the motivation. See, just as Paul spends the first chapter of Ephesians, he really spends the first three chapters just exalting in the greatness of Jesus. And then he says, okay, now that we understand that, how does that transform our hearts? How does that affect our lives? In the same way, we exalt in the majesty of Jesus. And we allow that to motivate us to work. We don't just sit here and, and get white-knuckled trying to work our best. It doesn't work. We're weak, we're feeble. We allow Christ to transform us from the inside out by meditating on his greatness. We are motivated to work because Christ himself did the ultimate work. He paid the price for our sins, for our idols, and for our idleness upon the cross and rose from the dead, forever securing our place with him. And so his love overflows onto us and through us and out of us into our work. This is why we work. This is why we honor God with our work, by understanding its purpose, by working with a sincere heart, and being motivated by Christ's finished work on the cross. And so to close, I'd like to charge you with the words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians 2, 6-7. through 7. He says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, idolaters, lazy. Lord, these sins, they eat at us sometimes, Father. Father, I pray over those in the congregation who've made work an idol. Maybe a lot, maybe a little, whatever is sense, Lord. I pray that you would help them to see the danger that that is. Would you reveal our hearts, Lord? Would you search our hearts, Lord? Root out the idols in our hearts. If work has become an idol, Lord, expose it. Make it clear. And Lord, smash that idol to pieces so that we could find our satisfaction in you. And Father, for those of us who struggle with a laziness or an idleness or, or just a rejection of your purpose for work, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. Again, expose our hearts. Expose our laziness. Father, help us to find satisfaction and joy 
in you so that we may find satisfaction and joy in our work. Father, I pray this morning that we would honor you in our work. Lord, and that you would teach us that when we fail, we can repent and we can come to you because you've already paid the price for our laziness and for our idolatry. It is finished. The work is done. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for that this morning. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.